0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Speaking of Asia. I'm Ravi Velur. In this episode, I discuss the inauguration of the spectacular temple to the Hindu god Rama by Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India on the 22nd of January. The area in which the temple was built which is in the northern Indian town of Ayodhya, has been the subject of deep controversy because a 16th-century mosque once stood there and it was destroyed by a mob of Hindus in 1992. On the other hand, many Hindus believe that the mosque was erected there after a temple to Lord Ram was destroyed on the orders of a Muslim conqueror. When the mosque was destroyed, India saw riots between Hindus and Muslims. To discuss the sociological and political implications of the Ram Temple for India, I have with me Associate Professor Salvatore Babonis. Professor Babonis is a sociologist at the University of Sydney and Executive Director of the Indian Century Roundtable. His current research focuses on the political sociology of democracy, and he's currently researching a book on Indian democracy. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Professor Babonis. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor Babonis, could you explain the significance of the Ram Temple that Mr. Modi inaugurated on the 22nd of January?
1: I can't really say why people believe so strongly in this and why it's so important to them. What I can tell you is that it is so important to them. And that's been clear from everything we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the outpouring of interest in Indian Hindu society and in Hindu society abroad for that matter around the Ram Temple consecration. It's clear that it's important. Whether it should be important or not, that's a matter of faith, not
0: a matter for sociology. What did you make of the Prime Minister of India personally consecrating the idol to the God Rama?
1: I think that is somewhat atypical. We would expect, of course, that the prime minister would attend. There's no doubt about that. And I think people who've criticized the prime minister for attending are really just mistaking how politics is done in a democratic society. Uh, Here in Australia, prime ministers and uh, members of parliament vie with each other to be present at the consecration of any temple or mosque or shrine because they want to reach out to their voters. Now, the prime minister being Involved personally in the consecration, even if he's, even if there's some question over whether he's doing so as the prime minister or as a private citizen, that I think does raise legitimate questions of the extent to which he is trying to telegraph a state endorsement of religion. Um, it is a difficult question. I don't have an easy answer for it. I don't know that there's an obvious parallel in other countries for that kind of involvement.
0: Salvatore. There's been a lot of discussion about Indian secularism lately and criticism that under Mr. Modi, it has come under threat. What is your sense of things?
1: I may rephrase that, that Mr. Modi has sought to establish a more religion-based view of what India is, not necessarily Indian democracy, but the Indian nation and the Indian state for that matter. Now, It's hard to say to what extent India was founded on secular foundations. Obviously, the word secular was itself added to the constitution as an afterthought during the emergency. Uh, Listeners who were unaware the emergency was a period of irregular rule under uh, the prime minister, then prime minister Indira Gandhi, 1975 to 1977. And she used her authority under emergency powers to push through constitutional amendments that added the word secular to the constitution. In the constitutional debates, that is the constituent assembly debates that led to India's constitution, there was an enormous amount of debate over the nature of the Indian Republic and the extent to which it should be viewed as a Hindu Republic. Now, it was not constituted as a Hindu Republic. However... You know, if you live life, history has to be lived forward, not backward. If you look at how people behaved at the time of the establishment of the modern Republic of India, in 1947 itself, when India uh, became independent, or in 1950, when the Republic was proclaimed, uh, well, then you see a lot of use of religious symbolism. You see a lot of religious language in the speeches that are made. There is was a Sengol used, that is a... a spiritual, a, a authoritative uh, staff that was consecrated in a South Indian temple was used at the um, inauguration of the Indian nation in, on, uh, on August 1516, 1947. And I think the people who founded the Indian Republic didn't really become as hardened in this view that India is a secular country. As that view became hardened under decades of Nehru Gandhi family rule, of course, people should be aware this is not Mahatma Gandhi, this is the Gandhi family descended from Feroz Gandhi, who was a fellow Indian revolutionary. So the Indian Republic became more secular as it developed, but what we're seeing now is an attempt to reach back to a different vision for Indian statehood, one that was very much alive at the time in the 1940s, that lost out politically in the elections after 1947, but that did not necessarily lose out in the hearts of Indians. I can't give, essentially what I'm trying to say is we can't give a definitive answer to this question. All we can ask is, well, what do different constituencies want for their own country in India today?
0: We talked about the constitution and Salvatore, thank you for mentioning that secularism was introduced only in 1975 by Indira Gandhi. Most of my listeners would not have known that. But uh, do you see the seeds of a second republic in the making? And Some people even talk about a Hindu nation, Hindu Rashtra, being born today. Is that, is that correct? Is that an accurate reading of the situation? What would you say?
1: That seems to be obviously a political effort to have this done in time, right, to to establish a festive season. On the other hand, it was going to happen at some point, and at any time that the consecration of the temple occurred, people would see a political motive in it. Look, I think we should simply be honest that, of course, Narendra Modi and the Bratia Janata party that he represents are very committed, have always been very committed to restoring, in their view, or imposing, in the view of critics, a Hinduness, uh, what's often called Hindutva, on the Indian polity. The fact that they succeeded in doing so in time for the Republic Day 2024, or if they had done it in time for the elections, because soon India will be going into a quiet period before the election. It would have been much more controversial had this consecration occurred in March instead of in January. Uh, these facts are are almost, I won't say irrelevant, but they're tangential to this larger issue. There is no doubt that Narendra Modi and the political party he's a member of are very committed to the idea of the Hindu basis of Indian society, the Indian state, and ultimately through those of Indian democracy. Is that a bad thing? Well, that depends on where you're
0: sitting politically. You're a sociologist and a student of democracy. Do you think that temple building and consecration could influence voting behavior in the coming elections? I don't explicitly study voting behavior, but I do think that's
1: very unlikely, which is to say, It's a long time till the election. People vote on many different issues. The excitement generated by the consecration will certainly have died down. It will become a promise that Mr. Modi will say he kept But it's a promise that was made decades ago. He didn't keep it in 2019, the fact that he kept it in the prior election. The fact that he kept it in 2024 will certainly raise his stature in the eyes of his supporters. But of course, it will diminish his stature in the eyes of his critics. It's very difficult to say what any particular event has to do with an election, particularly when it's very far out. I would suspect that a minor event occurring during the election like happened controversially five years ago with a strike against a, a terrorist group over the frontier in Pakistan, that is much more likely to sway votes. It's happening during the election season. It's very immediate than something that happened months before the election.
0: Do You know, some people believe that the impact will be limited to northern India. That Ram is worshipped there more than in the south. Do you agree?
1: I, I've heard this analysis, but I just don't think it's a realistic model of voting behavior. The consecration, and is particularly Mr. Modi's prominent role in the consecration, will have only doubled down the sense that he is associating himself with the Hindu faith. Those who want that sort of vision for their country already support Mr. Modi. Those who don't want that vision already oppose Mr. Modi. In the Ameri- in the language of American politics, we would say this is something that excites his base, not something that will persuade voters who are on the fence about things. Now, in North India, in the last elections, the BJP won overwhelmingly, and particularly in Uttar Pradesh, the state where the Yodhya is located. It will be difficult or almost impossible for the BJP to increase its representation coming from those states' where the temple consecration is most popular. So can it increase it? You know, well, we could say it might prevent them losing seats that might otherwise have been competitive. But once you get into those kinds of hypotheticals, you know, it's anybody's guess.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, We, we talked about the Indian constitution and you mentioned that secularism was uh, introduced in 1975 by Indira Gandhi. But do you see the seats of a second republic, one based less on secularism and more on majoritarianism taking shape. Some people talk of a Hindu nation being evolving and soon to be born. Would you agree? Oh, I I do very much see this as a
1: symbolic moment where India is now not founding a second republic, but it's becoming clear that a second republic has come about. I wouldn't call that a majoritarian, republic. I think we have to be very careful with language because so many people use political language as a way to stigmatize others. Majoritarianism is a clear tradition in political theory, going all the way back to John Adams, the US patriot from uh, the American revolution. His worry was that if you had democracy, the poor who outnumber the rich would simply vote to take things away from the rich make it that simple. The poor would rule over the rich majoritarianism. They would have policies that penalized rich people. Now, that never came to pass. We've had hundreds of years of democratic experience in many countries now, and no country has ever had that happen democratically. In fact, it's only ever happened anti-democratically. In the same way, there is the possibility, of course, and this possibility was raised during partition. In fact, the partition of India, in fact, it was one of the key fears that led Muslim intellectuals to want to have A separate homeland for Muslims, what became Pakistan and ultimately became the two countries of Pakistan and Bangladesh. They were afraid of a Hindu majoritarianism that majority Hindu India would exclude Muslims, would penalize Muslims, would take their lands, would, you know, would govern them as second-class citizens. Of course, what we've seen is exactly the opposite. It's in Pakistan and Bangladesh, where Hindus have been treated as second-class citizens and driven out of the country, and India has been, I think. People use the word tolerance, but I don't even think tolerance captures it. Tolerance implies a reluctance to allow people to remain in the country. I think there were fears in 1945, 1947, 1950. There were legitimate fears that India would be merely tolerant of Muslims, but never accept them into the political community. I think India has reached the point where Muslims are very much part of the uh, political community. Now, there's still social exclusion of Muslims. Don't get me wrong. But... There's social exclusion of Muslims. There's not majoritarianism in the sense of a Hindu majority voting to disenfranchise Muslims. There's no evidence that a Hindu majority has voted to close down mosques or to transfer mosques uh, property into these historical claims of temples. In fact, the temple, the Ayodhya temple, was awarded to the Hindu side in this controversy by the Supreme Court, which is a deeply secular institution that is completely independent of political power in India. It's a self-perpetuating institution that does not answer to uh, politic politicians whatsoever. It, judges aren't even appointed by politicians at this point. There's controversy over this. but you know, So the decision was made by people who had no political pressure, or at least very little. They're highly insulated from political pressure. So is this new Hindu Rashtra, as many people call it in India, Is it coming? I I think it has. I I think we've seen a transition in India from a republic that may not have been founded on secular terms, but clearly came to be administered on secular terms, to a country that is unabashedly Hindu while embracing its broader multi-faith population. But I've seen no evidence of majoritarianism.
0: But then would you not agree that when a party so dominates parliament, the BJP has 303 seats out of 543 seats in the lower house of parliament, and does not have a single Muslim MP in the house. Isn't that being
1: majoritarian? It's certainly not tokenistic. And although tokenistic is usually used as an insult or as a negative word, I think it would do very well, that is the Modi government and the BJP would do very well to be more tokenistic. That is, it's incumbent on them as the new establishment to foster the social inclusion of India's Muslims. Well, the problem is that they've historically seen themselves as an outsider party. And for decades, that was true. They were an insurgent outsider party. With this coming of the Second Republic, as it's been called, a Hindu Rashtra, as it's been called, with this transition in the nature of of the Indian polity, the BJP is now the establishment party. And they're not used to seeing themselves that way. Now, when you're an insurgent outsider party, you scrap to to get into power any way you can. And they've done that. And their argument has been that, well, if a Muslim would not win a certain seat, we're not going to put that person forward. We want to win the seat. And if they believe the Hindu candidate is going to win the seat, they'll do that. As an establishment party, there is a, I think, expectation of noblesse oblige, uh, that even if they take a few losses... They should do so in order to establish their legitimacy as the new default party of governance in India. Now, that's easy for me as an academic to say. It's difficult to tell any MP candidate, you have to give up your seat because we're going to run a Muslim, who, by the way, we believe will lose. (laughs) That's a very difficult, politically difficult thing to do. But I think it behooves an establishment party to
0: do just that. Salvatore. You say that there's pretty much a Hindu nation now. What led to this situation? And was it all because of internal reasons or did some external factors also play a part?
1: I view it as a maturation of Indian democracy. All the evidence I've seen from my historical research and from you know, doing as much digging as possible in period materials from the last 75 years and 77 years of Indian history suggests that this is the kind of country that most Indians generally expected and wanted to have. Even Indira Gandhi, the woman who put secular into the Constitution, was overtly Hindu in her public appearances because she wanted to reassure the country's Hindus that she was one of them. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing a, a Hindu nation, a Hindu Rastra, nor am I condemning it. Uh, I don't think it means what most people think it means. What I mean by the term is that India has come to see itself as a fundamentally Hindu society and that built on into that Hindu faith is an acceptance, not merely a tolerance, but an acceptance of people of other faith. Now, if that's the basis on which a Hindu rashtra is built, I don't see that as necessarily a negative thing. I see it as a reflection of facts on the ground. And I think there's a lot of evidence that those facts on the grounds were repressed for decades by a political class that was largely Western educated, largely English speaking, largely a-religious in their personal lives, who had a vision for India that differed from that of the vast majority of Indian people. That political class has had its vision rejected. And I don't think it's a matter of BJP wins the election, Congress wins the election. When, and there will be a time when either Congress or a replacement party for Congress, some opposition party is going to win, whether it's in 2029 or 2034, they win at the state level. So people listening may think, oh, that BJP rules India. No, no, they have won at the national level. Many states in India are run by people from other parties. You know, it's a highly competitive system, even when another party comes into power in Delhi it will still, in practice, view the country as a Hindu nation built on Hindu principles. Again, I don't advocate that. I recognize that
0: and and I fully expect that uh, for the future. As you know, about a fifth of the Indian population are non-Hindus and Muslims number about 200 million. How are the minorities taking all this?
1: That is a uh, difficult question. We do have some survey data on it. Our, that's The best survey data we have is collected by the US Pew Research Center at the end of 2019 in a major survey of nearly 30,000 households in India, so including large samples for Muslims as well as for Hindus. The data seemed that Muslims do not report facing discrimination in India at any high levels. Levels of self-reported discrimination are very low. There, I believe off the top of my head, 24% say that Muslims face discrimination in India. Put that in perspective, 22% of Hindus say that Hindus face discrimination in India. And to put it in further perspective, 80% of African-Americans say that African-Americans face discrimination in the United States. So if we just think of how high is this level of discrimination, it's very low. Ninety-nine percent say they're proud to be Indian. We can go to anecdotal evidence like the success of Muslim film stars in Bollywood films, the hypermasculinity of Muslim men in Indian spy movies and crime movies. There's not a systematic there doesn't seem to be, I should say, a systematic view among Indian Muslims that they face serious discrimination. That said, There's a very high level of residential segregation in India. Muslims live among Muslims, Hindus live among Hindus. That breaks down a little bit with Christians and Hindus in the South. But broadly speaking, in areas that are majority Muslim and Hindu, there's extreme residential segregation. And there's a high level of social exclusion with parallel institutions where Muslims have their own peak bodies, their own institutions. And because the all India institution is dominated by Hindus and the Muslim equivalent institution would be all Muslim. Of course, the quote unquote Indian institution is Hindu dominated while the Muslim institution is Muslim dominated. Now that's a form of social exclusion. Obviously, the Indian institutions should have a broad representation of Indian Muslims and they often don't. I think that's really a challenge for India, but that's a challenge that many countries face. Again, I, I don't want to you know, so many people hyperventilate over these issues. I think we should be mature and recognize that there are serious challenges, but those serious challenges can be met, are improving, and are generally
0: no worse than what we see in other countries. You know, I read you saying somewhere that some Muslims, uh, Muslim women particularly, do vote for the BJP. Is that so?
1: Well, some, Yeah, you know, that's the important thing. It's what roughly 20% of Muslims report having voted for BJP. Now, that's in the 2019 election. And that compares to 49% of Hindus reported voting for the BJP in the 2019 election. Now, that is clouded by a high level of non-response among Muslims. So Hindus are much more likely to tell us who they voted for than Muslims are. Even if you assume that all of the non-responders were reticent to respond because they did not vote for the BJP. We still have something like 15% of Indian Muslims voting for the BJP. There is a slight but statistically significant concentration among women. That is, Muslim women are statistically significantly more likely to vote BJP than Muslim men, but it's a small difference. I don't remember the exact number, but it's a couple percentage points, but given our sample size, it's statistically
0: significant. I have a final question, uh, Professor Babunis. Some people in the Bharatiya Janata Party have talked about the Ram Temple as being something of a Vatican for Hindus. Do you agree?
1: I find that hard to believe. Now, I have to, again, caution, I, I am not Hindu, and I don't study the Hindu faith. But the Hindu faith is such a multifarious faith with so many different bases of authority that, in effect, there is no central authority in the Hindu faith. So I find it Fantastical. Of course, it's something that many people in India, and especially in the BJP, may desire it to become. I would be very surprised if that actually came to be. Professor Babonis,
0: thank you for coming and Speaking of Asia. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.